as we begin today, I want to ask you a question. Now, I'm going to acknowledge right at the beginning here, it's a bit of a cheesy question. It's a question maybe you've heard in movies. It's maybe one you've read in articles along the ways. But I think it's an important question. And it's what I want you to seriously think about for a second. And, and find an answer to, not that you're going to be asked to share it or anything like that, but, but I think it's important for us to come to an answer to this question. And here it is. What does your heart desire most? Think about it for a second. What does your heart desire the most? What, what is it the thing that you long for the most? What more than anything else in this world, if you could have only one thing, what does your heart desire most? Think about that for a moment. It's an important question because when you answer it, it may actually be insightful for you to, to some of the priorities that you have in your life, to, to what motivates you in certain directions. It may even, if you were to share that with somebody else, it may even give them insight into how you operate, how you function, how you think, how you relate to other people. It's a very important question. You know, there's people who would say, well, the thing they long for the most is for a long, healthy life. We, we probably heard people say something like that in the past. But we know people who are serious about that because it won't just be a dream or a wish. It'll be actually a heart's desire that motivates them to change the way they, they exercise, to change the way that they eat. It'll actually lead to a change of behavior and attitude and, and view towards aspects of their lives. If you find somebody who says, well, my, my heart's desire is to travel the world. Well, if they are serious about that and if they actually want to drive and pursue those things, there's going to be change in their lives. They might choose to find a career, maybe become self-employed or something where they, where they can have some freedom that may exist at certain parts of the year where they can actually do that and not be limited to just two weeks of vacation. You'll see a difference on how they use, how they save, how they work for their money because that's their heart's desire that's driving them towards something. We see this in people in the world around us. Think back to uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Canada again celebrated the Terry Fox run. There's a guy who, who decades ago had a heart's desire as a humanitarian, as an advocate for cancer research, wanted to make a dent in this tragic illness and disease that people suffer with to the point where he trained. He gave up aspects of his life and changes to his treatment so that he would run across Canada because his heart's desire motivated him towards something. There's plenty of answers to this question. Maybe you long to have plenty of laughter in your life to have strong relationships with those who are the most dear to you. Maybe, and I think this is a cool one, maybe you just, your heart's desire is one day to see Earth from space. That'd be awesome, be able to do that. Or perhaps right now you're like, yeah, I could just use a good night's sleep. Just, just some rest, some peace. I'm not thinking Earth from space. I'm just thinking eight hours of solid sleep. Uh, whatever it is, it gives insight to what's motivating and driving and affecting us. Now, all of us desire things. Uh, and most of the time, what we desire are very appropriate and very good things. Now, if you grew up in church or if you went to Sunday school as a little one, you already know what the proper answer to every question that ever comes from a pulpit is, right? So what is the proper answer we learn in Sunday school? Jesus. Right. <laughs> so you're paid attention in Sunday school. That's fantastic. The teachers will be thrilled to hear that. And, and, and we joke about that sometimes, but it's truth especially to this question as well, it's true, that the answer to this question should be Jesus. When I think about that, it reminds me of some friends that Nadine and I have who a number of years back, who felt a calling to ministry and had such a desire in their hearts that went along with that calling to share God's love and grace to, to children who are orphaned and have never experienced a, a hug, a love, security, and a home. 
And so they left everything they had in Canada. They packed up their family and they moved to Belize where they now have an orphanage in Belize out of a call from God, but a desire to share God's love with other people because the answer in their situation was definitively Jesus because Jesus is the right answer. But as we think about what maybe we thought of or maybe we wrote down on our bulletin as what our hearts desire, quite often the answer is, is God and, well, fill in the blank. Those two things coming together is often what our heart desires the most. And where those things come together, how they come together, can also lead us to a deeper understanding of the posture that we have towards God. Whether we are living life over, under, from, or for God. Now, as we've been saying each week throughout this series, each of these four postures does have some value and some merit to it. But they all fall short of what it means to fully experience God's desire for us, which is his desires for us to do life with him, to first and foremost have life with God. And that life with God posture begins with us coming to a point where we see him as our heart's desire where there is nothing else in our lives, nothing else in the world, whether we have it or hope for it, nothing else that we desire or treasure more than him. To the point where we could say, even if, even if that secondary desire, even if that thing that I wrote down at the start of the sermon, even if that thing that I thought of in my mind, even if that is not realized, even if I don't have long life, if I don't travel the world, if I don't have wealth, if, if, if heaven forbid, I, I, I don't have family around me, even if, my primary desire is in God, and that can never be taken away, and so I will still be satisfied in him. Now, I want to pause for a second before we go any further and just get you to really think about that phrase, about that idea that we can have life with God. Like, we say these things on occasion, but think about those three words that come together into an incredibly profound, amazing, awesome phrase that we, the people in this room, the people in the world around us, the people we work with, go to school with, play sports with, the people we see on TV, everybody in this world has the potential, the opportunity to have life with God. Not just, not just a future reality. That means like the things that you have planned on your calendar this afternoon. The things that are happening in the week ahead of you. The challenge and the struggle that you are going through or you are fearing you're going to go through. You can have life with God in those things. And we're talking about God here, folks. The creator of all that is. Who reigns in power and majesty and sovereignty. That we can have life with him. That's an amazing phrase, three little words strung together. It's also a Christian distinctive. Did you know that? It is a Christian distinctive. In Christian alone, no other religion, no other philosophy will tell you that this is possible, that this is truth and that this is the reality. This idea that God is knowable, that he is personal, that he is relational, that he can exist in our present lives, he can exist in our world today, not just in eternity, but in eternity also. And that Jesus wasn't just a man, wasn't just a rabbi or a teacher or a prophet. He was God himself. As we're going to be start talking about in a few weeks, he is Emmanuel, God with us. God who came to us who stepped into the darkness of our world to personally reveal God's glory, 
God's truth, God's justice, and to provide a way that we could be in relationship with him. In the opening words of John's gospel, he speaks in a, in a way of this idea of Jesus' divinity, but also of his incarnation. When he says in John 1, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light to all of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is one of the paradoxes of Christianity, that Jesus, here referred to as the word, existed before all things that he was God and was with God. This is one of the verses amongst many others where we get this concept of the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Spirit existing in perfect eternal unity and harmony and community within themselves. And as we come to understand that that is the reality of God that we are called to be in relationship with, that that is who he is, we begin to understand that affects our view of him, it affects our view of the world, it affects our view of why he created. Because at the center of it all, at the foundation of it all is relationship. Relationship that begins within himself. And our life with God posture is predicated on the view that relationship is at the core of creation. And therefore we can naturally understand that why when there's a break in relationship between God and man, God steps into history and restores broken people that they can be in relationship with him. See, when we understand that, we come to see that Jesus did not come to give us a list of rules and rituals to follow so we could live life under him. He didn't come to give us a list of, of useful principles that we could implement in our lives apart from him and live life over him. He didn't come to be our cosmic vending machine so that he could grant all of our heart's desires. He didn't come to give us a, a list of boxes we have to tick or tasks we have to do in order to please him or to accomplish for him and live life for him. No, instead, God came to be with us, that all of us in the world we currently live could walk with him the way he walked with Adam and Eve at the beginning of time in paradise and in creation as he walked with them and he talked with them and he had communion and fellowship with them and they knew him and they, and they were in that intimate relationship we know that's not the world we live in today. But you see, Jesus Christ broke into the darkness of our world today so that he could share in that darkness and overcome it. And by doing so, he brought light to illuminate our way forward so that we could be with him, that we could know him, and that we could do life with him and have a relationship with the Father through the Son. And if we grasp that concept, if we truly understand those amazing principles we come to see that he is worthy of being our heart's desire. Nothing can compare with that. Nothing can compare with the value that he has, that he should be and should be and want, longs to be our heart's greatest desire. But honestly, as we look at our lives, the way we think, is that our 24-7 reality? I know for a lot of us, and this isn't a a judgmental statement. It, it's just a snapshot of reality for so many of us in the, in the things of this world that compete and bombard against us for our attention and to be our heart's desire. Quite often, I think for many of us, God is always on the list. But he's on a list with other things that exist on that list as well. And, and our, you see, our view of God and our value of Jesus consistently places him somewhere on the list. But is he often at the top? 
Is he often our greatest desire? Is the nature of the question we wrestle with today. You know, our concept of God impacts not only how we view him, but our ability to desire him. You've thought about that? We're probably familiar with this idea that when we, when we hear certain words or phrases or see certain images, that, that these carry meaning. And based upon the meaning we attach to words, phrases, people, places, and things, the, the way that we have meaning attached to those things impacts the way we act towards them, the way we feel towards them. This isn't an uncommon thing for us in our world. For example, um, celebrities, movie stars, certain musicians, certain uh, bands that are out there. There's ones you like and ones you don't like. You'll decide where you spend your money, where you spend your time, where you spend your energy, which songs you listen to and memorize the lyrics to based upon your opinion of a certain artist. We see this with, uh, with movie stars as well. For example, uh, Nadine, she does not like Matthew McConaughey at all. If he's listening online, I apologize, but he's probably not. <laughs> but I've never seen a Matthew McConaughey movie because we don't go to those. I don't know fully why. And even if he was in a movie that, that cleaned up at the Oscars one year, we would still not go to a Matthew McConaughey movie because we have a preconceived understanding of him and his movies, which apparently are wrong and are bad. I don't have first-hand experience. We've never been because we married. There's no me. There's we's, right? We don't like Matthew McConaughey, right? It's a little marriage tangent for you. Sports teams. You live in a certain city. Every city has a rivalry. We know this very, very well, living in Edmonton. We are just north of a rival city, and we have certain views towards the sports teams of that rival city, especially this weekend when the Eskimos are knocked out of the playoffs. We have all of a sudden this common saying, you've been in Alberta long enough, or in Edmonton long enough, you know what ABC stands for? Anybody? Anybody but Calgary, right? And so now that Edmonton's out of it, ABC. Anybody but Calgary, with these rivalries come up. Even with food, everybody thought about with food, we have that. Our daughter, Kaylina, when she, was, when she was little, she was a super fussy eater. She would only eat chicken. That was it, just chicken. If we put steak on her plate, what's this? Steak, I don't like steak. We put pork chops, what's this? I don't like pork chops. So we realized that all we had to do was at like Christmas time when we had turkey. If we said, this is turkey, she wouldn't eat it. But we said, well, it's Christmas chicken. <laughs> oh, I like Christmas chicken. Easter would come around. What's this? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's Easter chicken. It was a ham, but it was Easter chicken. In the summertime, we had, we had uh, summer chicken, which was steak. We had, canned, you know, we had canned chicken, which was tuna. And she would eat them all. But see, she had this idea stuck in her head that I only like chicken. I don't like any other meats. As long as we used the word, she would allow herself to experience these things. Now, now we, we know this from our world. The same principle applies to, to our relationship and our view towards God. You may have come across somebody or you personally may struggle with a phrase like Heavenly Father. If somebody had a negative experience with their earthly father and you tell them that they have a Heavenly Father, they're thinking, well, why would I want a Heavenly Father? My earthly father didn't work out very well for me. Uh, um parents who had a bad experience with church and have left the church a generation earlier. And you talk to their kids, you say, hey, you should come to church with me. They're like, why would I do that? Because they've associated church, Christianity, with pain that they themselves maybe didn't have, but their parents did. Or if you ask somebody, who is Jesus? They might say, well, prophet, teacher, heretic, son of God. 
Whatever word they associate will have a huge impact on how they view him, how they see him, relate to him, and also how they value him. We see this lived out in a, in a great story found in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus shows up at, at the, uh, the Sea of Galilee as he had just crossed over the sea, and he gets out of his boat on the outskirts of a community where there's a man who is possessed by a demon. And he's been there for many, many years on the outskirts of town. And the passage in Mark, chapter, one verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, tells us that this man had, had been possessed and tormented for a long time. That the people in the town at one point had tried to, to help him and control him to some degree, where they, they, they tried to bind him. They would even try to bind him with chains, but he would, he would just snap them with incredible strength and ability. And, and I have a sense of fear and inability to control this and, and the wailing and the gnashing and, and the challenges that he, prevented, that he caused the town. They, they basically cast this man out of town so he lived on the outskirts, completely separated from the community. And it tells us in verse 5 that that night and day that he lived among the tombs in the hills and he would cry out and cut himself with pieces of stone. Imagine that. You're laying in, you're in this community laying in bed at night, going to sleep, your kids are going to sleep, and you can hear off in the distance this wailing and gnashing and yelling from the graveyard on the outskirts of town. A story fit for Halloween type of thing. But as Jesus shows up on, this, on the shore of the sea, this man sees him and comes running towards him and drops to his knees, and, and, and the demons inside him, we're told, are what speaks, and, the, and they're fearful. They're fearful to be in the presence of Jesus, and they say, what do you want with us? In the name of God, don't torture us, they say to Jesus. You see, the demons within him feared being cast out into eternal punishment. They knew that this was the Son of God. And if he cast them out, he could cast them into a time of eternal punishment. They said, we have a better option for you. We have another option for you. There's a herd of pigs over there. Cast us into the herd of pigs. Now, Jesus gives permission, and so these, these demons leave this man and end up in these 2,000 pigs who now race down a hill, down a bank, into a lake, and they drown. Now, watching all of this is a group of young men whose job it is to look after those pigs, and they are just dumbfounded at what they see. If you imagine, our job is to look after these pigs that just ran down a hill and drowned themselves. So, one, we're fired, and two, disbelief at what they've just experienced, the power and the amazement of what they've just seen. And so they race back into town to tell the townspeople what had happened. And then the townspeople come back out to see what is going on in the hillsides out by their city. And they find Jesus sitting with a man who's dressed, who's calm, and having a conversation. Now the townsfolk are speechless. Because they look at this guy and they go, we're pretty sure this is the guy that we couldn't bind. That we put chains on him, he snapped them like pretzels. This is the guy who used to howl at the moon at night and scare my kids. And he's sitting here perfectly fine, insane. And it's at this point in the story that the meaning and the understanding of who Jesus is has a huge impact upon their, relation, their reaction to him, their value of him, and their desire for Jesus or otherwise. Because you see, the townspeople have a partial view of who Jesus is. They saw his power, and they're frightened. They look at him and they think, you know, we've lost a huge herd. That, that's, that's income. That's jobs. We, we've lost this in our community. What more damage could this man do if he stays? What if he comes into the town and wants to like take over the village? 
What, what if he wants to, to take our wealth, if he wants to impose himself upon our community? We couldn't stop him. We couldn't stop the man who broke the chains. How could we stop the man who healed him? And so we're told in verse 17 that then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. But then there's also the man who's just been healed, who has a much fuller vision of Jesus and who Jesus is. He's experienced the power, and he also has experienced and sees Jesus' goodness. And his response is to know and go. I want to know Jesus more. I want to go with Jesus. And in verse 18, we see the very next verse, we see his reaction. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Take me with you. Now notice that what's happening in this man's life. For the first time for years, if not maybe the first time ever, this guy's got a chance to go live in the community. He's got an opportunity to have friends to have a career. He may even, God willing, have a wife and kids yet in his future because of this healing that's happened. All of these things that so many people long for, desire for, are now a reality that he can possibly have. And yet his sole desire is to go and to be with Jesus. Because nothing in the world could compare to what he has found in Jesus. He has a very different vision than everybody else does. Therefore, he has a different response than everybody else does. Because in his response, his top desire is life with God, is the top thing he's longing for. You know, and the same pattern holds true for us today, that that we can have like an incomplete or a bit of a, a tainted vision of who God is. And that can lead us to have a relationship with him, but a relationship that's, that's in one of these postures where either we want to use him or maybe even dismiss him. But if we can get a clearer joyful vision of who God is revealed through Jesus, we then come to a point where we would be not, not be willing to settle for anything less, anything less than to be with him today and every day going forward. See, this wasn't an uncommon situation for Jesus to find himself in. And quite often when the crowds would start following Jesus and come around him and people would be pressing in and asking questions and wanting things and, and just following behind in his footsteps, he, he would ask them qualifying questions because as people started to seek him and follow him, he, he needed to know what their motives were. Uh, Luke 14, we see a great example of this where Jesus is at the peak of his ministry. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And throughout his ministry, it's at a point where, where the crowds have been following him. And, and as he's going around teaching and healing and and, and meeting different people. Gradually, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger crowds. But he's now on this way to Jerusalem. He's on his final trek towards Jerusalem. And it's at a time when people would do a pilgrimage. And so the crowds are getting bigger and bigger than they've ever been before. And the further they go, the bigger they get. Because they expect that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, that he's going to be king. He's going to set himself up in this kingdom. They're going to be free of Rome, this messianic era where we have Uh, a say and we have power and ability, that's going to get set up. So I'm following this guy and I'm going to walk him all the way to the palace in Jerusalem. But Jesus knows that the days ahead are a little different. He knows that the days ahead of all these people is going to be full of challenges. There's going to be persecution. He's got some hard teachings that he hasn't even gotten into yet that he's about to, to reveal to the people and to the Pharisees. He also knows that at the end of the day, at the end of the journey, is death. And so he checks their motives. He asks them a question, basically asking, guys, do you desire me? Or do you desire what you think you can get from me? And he asks them, 
in this question here. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, he's not literally talking here about hating your mom and dad. He's not literally talking here about about hating your your siblings and, and hating your own life. What he's saying here is that when people look at your love for Jesus compared to your love for these other things, the distinction between those two things should be so great that it looks like you hate your parents because of how much you love me. This distinction should exist. It's to the point where there's no comparison. See, Jesus is trying to determine that if things don't go the way you expect, if you follow me all the way to the Jerusalem and there's no payoff there, are you still with me? If you're going to do life with me and doing life with me costs you, if it costs you wealth, if it costs you relationships, if it costs you possessions, if it costs you the stability that you're longing for, are you still in? What is your heart's desire? Jesus is saying to them, am I a means to an end or am I your end? Before we go any further down this road, am I your end? Do you treasure life with Jesus above all else? That's an intense question. It's an intense passage in the way that he phrases it. But Jesus is picking up on some of the most significant desires and priorities that exist in a person's life. The reasons that they do certain things and the emphasis that show up in their lives. He's picking up on these common things. Now, this also is not an uncommon principle in our lives because in big and small ways, every day we're faced with similar questions in our lives where we have to make decisions upon priorities. Because if you say yes to one thing, the natural outcome is you have to say no to other things. We know this exists in our world. For example, I know a man who was given an opportunity for a promotion and it was one that he had longed for for, a, for many, many years but it meant that he would have to be traveling in a way on weekends and he'd be working a lot of evenings. He had a choice to make. Did he treasure that promotion? Did he treasure that job more than his family in this case? And he turned it down because he treasured his family. He's like, no, my weekends and my evenings are reserved. Those are blocked off. Those are a no-go zone for work because I treasure my family more. And so he had to settle for a different position, but he was at peace with it because his greatest treasure, his greatest desire he still had, which was his family. I know people who have chosen the exact opposite of that as well, or they've chosen work. There's one guy who used to work for me whose wife was pregnant and her due date was a certain date, and he scheduled his business trips a week ahead and a week after. He says, you have to have that baby in that week. She didn't. She was late. He left town, missed the birth of his daughter, made a different choice. There's these situations we encounter in our lives, in our world, where what is our highest desire, and it motivates, and it drives us towards certain behaviors and actions based on what we value. And we may not think of it consciously when we're making decisions this way, but we do it all the time. And so as I mentioned at the beginning, what does your heart desire? What does it motivate you towards? What is it driving? What is it a driving force towards? You see, if we're going to experience this, this life with God posture, It begins with finding that God is our heart's greatest desire. And Jesus' question to us is, what do you treasure? What is the goal? What is the desire of your life? And what are you willing to give to possess it? It's a question that he asked to help us determine what posture we're relating to him from and where God fits into the scenario. 
there's also an answer he gives us. He gives us the answer to the question. And he does so in Matthew chapter 13, where he tells a very short parable, where he also equates the kingdom of heaven with his presence and a relationship with him. And here's the answer he gives in Matthew 13. When he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for a fine pearl. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. See, the nature of this parable is that Jesus' desire and his invitation for everybody, if we're going to be a follower of him, is to have a full vision of who he is. We have a full understanding of his value. And that nothing in life can compare to him. To the point where we treasure him above everything else. And therefore our natural outcome becomes, even if. Even if I have to give something up. I have my greatest desire. I've seen this in a few people's lives and stories. There's a man I knew from a, a few years back that I was discipling for a while. And he, he was in a few different businesses, one of which was real estate development, though. And he and a couple of partners had got together, and they're building a very large condo building downtown. And without going into all the details of it, the deal fell apart. Investors wanted their money back. And all of a sudden, when people started having to not just pay in, but they had to start paying out, his two investors turned on him. Now, he had a choice to make. His choice was, I can turn on them the way they've turned on me, and maybe we can send this thing to court, and worst case scenario, we just divide it three ways for what we got to pay for a penalty. He said, but he said, they're lying, they're, they're cheating, they're, they're throwing me under the bus here. And he said, if I do the same thing, I feel like I would be, um, I'd be going against my integrity. He said, they know I'm a Christian, and my Christianity means so much to me, and my witness means so much to me, I, I, can't, I can't tarnish that word, that name, that relationship. I, I can't go against my integrity. And so he decided to not fight back and push back. And he ended up holding the whole bag for the whole thing. And in this man's case, his integrity cost him $30 million. But his integrity was that important to him because of the impact it would have upon people's view of him, Christianity, and Jesus. You may have heard of athletes who speak for Christ and then they, they get a, rep, a tarnished reputation. Probably the most famous by far would be Tim Tebow, a man who won the Heisman Trophy, who played for the Broncos, played for the Jets, but has been constantly ridiculed for being an outspoken Christian. Even when he, after, after, before a game, after a game, whenever he had a score, he would kneel and pray, and they even made a thing called Tebowing because he would do that. But he has been absolutely unwavering in his faith, even though it's cost him his reputation and probably much, much more. And he was quoted as saying, you know what, the thing that I focus on is that what God knows about us is more important than what others think. Is that he is focused upon his highest treasure, being what God thinks of him, not what others think of him. Maybe a more common situation, one that, that I've walked through myself a little bit a few years back, when we look at things like, like security, uh, money, finances. If I just have enough, I'll feel secure. I'll be comfortable. That was one of the big things that I struggled with a lot of, a lot of years back before I was becoming a pastor and on this road in. And, and it was constantly convicting me because I put a lot of security in my bank account. 
Because if I had enough, I can buy my way into, out of, and through anything. So I had that, but I also had this nagging principle that I was supposed to be tithing. I thought, well, if I give to this, I won't have enough over here. And so we just didn't for a lot of years. And that was a conflicting challenge within me because I knew only one of those two things could rule. And so then we just made the choice one day to say we need to surrender that, that there's a higher value, there's a higher principle, there's a higher command that we need to follow and start on that path of giving regularly and systematically to God's work. And throughout it all, he has met our needs. He has never, they haven't always been easy, but he has never let us fall. We've stumbled, we've had challenges, it hasn't always been easy, but it's been a faith-building opportunity. It's been a moment of growth for us. It's, and it's also a moment where you get to see blessings come back, not in dollar signs that, that fill up this inappropriate need before, but in ways of comfort and peace and trusting in God and not in things that we accumulate ourselves. I came to realize through that situation that, um, that as long as I was clinging to security and I valued those things, I valued what I could accomplish more than God, I would never be able to tithe. But I released that, and, and there's been a shift that's been taking place. I mention these examples because I want us to understand today that if we're going to experience this life with God posture, that whether it's in how we view something, how we act, how we believe, what we value in our lives, we need to be treasuring God above all of that. And here's the good news. Many of us, see, we have these questions that say, what are you willing to give up? You know, wealth, relationships, position, uh, family, things like that. These are the examples. These are the parables. These are the questions that are posed. But not many of us will be asked to go to that extreme. There are some people in this world who will, in certain areas that they live, they will be asked, are you willing to give your very life for the name of Christ? That's a reality none of us, if any of us here, will ever hear or have to experience. So in a way, we have some comfort in that. But the question still remains. Is It's not about when are you going to give up those things. It's called a posture because it's about an attitude. It's asking the question, even if you had to, are you ready and willing to? Even if it costs you. There's a very low likelihood it will. But even if it costs you, Wealth, relationship, profession, stability. Are you still in? Do you still value Jesus above all else? Where he's not a means to an end, he is the end in and of himself. Now the greatest example I can give to you of what this looks like is Jesus himself. You see, Jesus demonstrated this force when he didn't consider his position with God something to be taken to his own advantage. But he gave his all when he humbled himself when he took the position of a servant, when he became obedient to death, even death upon a cross, so that we could have light in our darkness, so that he could prove in so many ways that he is worthy of being our greatest desire, so that he could open the way for us to be in relationship with the Father through the Son. He gave his all so that we could have it all with God and that we could value him above all else. If we understand that, we understand why he's worthy. Why Jesus is worthy to be our greatest desire. In the weeks ahead as we continue unpacking this concept of life with God, we're going to talk about what does it mean if we have life with God to also have life with faith in God. Life with hope from God. 
and life in love that comes from God. Those are the things we're going to talk about in the days ahead as we uncover more of what this looks like. So I invite you to consider some of the questions we've wrestled with today, some of the passages we've heard here today. If you want to examine this a little more in about 24 hours or probably two days, you can go on the website and you'll find some questions that go along with these messages for personal study, for studies of family, for study with a group. Just go to westmeadows.org and under the, under the, the watch tab, it'll say media, watch, and you'll see a link at the bottom of the page there where the video is that you can get the questions to unpack this a little more individually as a family or as a small group. If you have our time, find that. Call Luke. He'd love to hear from you, help you out. So I invite you if you join me in a word of prayer now. Father God, as we've been talking around this idea today of, of how awesome you are, Lord. God, of how you stepped into our reality. Of how you came and, and revealed yourself to us. Not, not to puff yourself up by any means, but to just reveal and humble yourself before us. So that we would understand your worth and your value in our lives. But also have an example to follow as we relate to one another. God, I pray that for all of us here, all of us who have competing desires and opportunities and, and, and things that just, just weigh upon us in life, that we would not allow, that we would set up safeguards to not allow anything to keep us and to steal us from having you as our highest desire, that you would be the thing that motivates the most, that we drive towards the most, that we seek the most. And we know that when we seek first things first, you add all these other things unto us, Lord, and we trust you for that, and we place all those things under your care and under your goodness to distribute as you see fit. Lord, may we just seek you first and trust you for all the rest. As we go through these doors in a few moments, Lord, we go into a community that many people do not know you, do not know that you desire them and that they have a desire for you. I pray it would help them to understand the value that you have in our lives and can have in their lives. That they too would take that step to come and know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.